0: Thank you for being with us this summer. I hope you've enjoyed this study of the Psalms. And I just want to start uh, by saying I love the Psalms. I, uh, if I could spend time with anyone in the Bible other than Jesus, I might choose David. And it's not necessarily because of all the warrior and king stuff. I, I love that he played something like a guitar and that he wrote songs. Because uh, I try to do these things too. Maybe I am an amateur psalmist, um, in 2005, I ended up on this mission trip to Ukraine, which is a very interesting experience because I wasn't supposed to be on the trip. <laughs> Some things happened, and I got kind of called in from the bullpen, and we were going to Ukraine to go out to a sanatorium, which is like a hotel in the woods that they would use for vacationing during communism. So it's like a dilapidated old hotel in the woods, not scary at all. <laughs> and, uh, and there we were to talk with Ukrainian high school kids about being satisfied. In Jesus. And so the first morning of the retreat, I wake up, had a roommate from here that I was staying with. I woke up at three in the morning. And not because I wanted to. Uh, No one really told me that the sun barely went down in that part of the world and comes up at three in the morning. And no one built that room with blinds in it. You know, so the light comes streaming in. What time is it? It's three in the morning. So here we are, hours to go before breakfast. And, uh, I couldn't go back to sleep. So I pulled out my guitar and I started writing a song about what we were, you know, gonna be talking about that week, being satisfied in Jesus. And what began there eventually became a song that I shared over the years with our youth here at PCPC. And through the years, that song really seemed to resonate with people. It's a song um, called You Satisfy. And so if just a few of the lyrics, I won't sing it it's too early, uh, <laughs> but the first verse says, only you can fill me. But you know that I have tried to stuff myself with things that kill me. And surely I have died, but you bring to life. And then the chorus says, The world will try to tell me what I need, but only you can satisfy me. If I glorify what satisfies my soul, take the glory as you come and make me whole. You satisfy. The second verse says, Deep within the desert lives an empty man be like me. He digs all day for buried pleasure, a shovel in his hand, but there's only sand. The world will try to tell me what I need, but only you can satisfy me. If I glorify what satisfies my soul, take the glory as you come and make me whole. You satisfy. It's sort of like my version of Psalm 73. It's this, this sense that the world is trying to sell us something, a form of joy and satisfaction, but it doesn't it doesn't really do it for us. And so there's this wrestling match with the Bible's claim that God alone truly satisfies. And a lot of times we look at the world, and the world seems better, the grass looks greener. And so every time I would sing this song, it kind of felt like, I do believe, help my unbelief. There's a difference between the way life seems to work in the world and the way life really is for those who are in Christ. And if the Lord doesn't open our eyes to see that difference, we're in trouble and that's really kind of the arc of psalm 73 which is a psalm not of David but of Asaph. If you don't know Asaph, he was one of David's friends. He and his brothers helped lead the singing in Israel's worship. If you read 1st Chronicles 16:4, it says, "Then David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel." And it says, "Asaph was the chief he's like the chief singer. He's a music minister, and it's encouraging to me that even music ministers struggle. We're all desperate for the Lord. So I want you to listen to Asaph's story in Psalm 73. You can follow along on your handout or in your Bible. Psalm 73, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the brutal honesty of many of the Psalms, and we pray this morning that we might be honest before you. Lord, it can be a struggle to see the way life seems in the world and to not see the way life really is in Christ. Pray that as we're in your presence this morning in your word, that you might do something in us like you did in Asaph to open his eyes and to truly see the wonder of all that he had in you. Lord, bless this time in your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to walk us through sort of a simple outline. Walk us through the text and then give you guys a chance to unpack this together. And First, I want to talk about the way life seems in the world. This is really the first 15 verses that comes through in that part of the psalm. And how you could say it is those who are far from God seem to have everything. That seems to be where Asaph where his heart is at. Those who are far from God seem to have it all going well, and those who are near to God seem to have nothing. Famously, we could say it like this, why do bad things happen to good people? We often hear that phrase, or why do good things seem to happen to bad people? Asaph seems to see himself as good. He's trying to do life with God. In verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's a good thing to say, it's the right thing to say, but he's actually struggling to truly embrace that. Because in verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. If you were here for Paul Goebel talking about Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man who delights in God's law, who chooses that path. You know, Paul talked about how there's that path following the Lord and there's that path kind of listening to the world and going the world's way it's almost like this psalm interacts with that you know you've said blessed is the man i'm not so sure so asaph looks at himself how he's trying to live he feels like he should be doing better he looks at the world and he's envious of what he sees these bad people around him you know they don't care about God they're prospering It's this ancient dilemma that can rear its head, especially when something hard happens in our lives. Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this not happening to them? (laughs) Look at them. In the world, it seems like those who are far from God have everything. So in worldly terms, their lives often seem great. Look at verse 4. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Our version might be skinny and toned. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So he looks and sees people with no pain, no trouble. (laughs) They look good to make it worse. They're proud and violent about it. So for us, you know, if we're going to lose in life, we at least want to lose to people who are humble and kind. These are not those people these guys make fun of you and kick you while you're down, and I'm a Dodger fan, so I think of the Astros. You know they cheat to win the World Series, and then they're proud and violent about it, like they're the victim. This is what Asaph is feeling. In verses seven through 11, Asaph tells us more about what he observes. He says, "Their folly flows from a wicked heart, and you see it in what they say. So remember what Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. these guys are speaking. Verse 8, they're scoffers, they're bullies. Perhaps you know people like this at work or at school or in the neighborhood. Verse 9, they're not afraid of God. Their mouths lay claim to heaven like it's theirs, you know, like they own the place, like they run the place. Verse 11, they say, how can God know is their knowledge in the most high? So they're functional or, you know, out-and-out atheists. They live like God doesn't exist, or at least he doesn't matter. God doesn't know what we're doing. He won't call us to account. And so as you go through these first 10-11 verses, it feels like a downward spiral, because it is. Asaph's meditation on the way life seems in the world is carrying him farther away. As he said in verse 2, his feet were almost slipping, and it colors the way he sees everything and the way he sees his life in the Lord. So his heart seems to be full of envy, not gratitude. He envies the prosperity, he says, of the wicked. If they're so bad, Lord, why do they have it so good? I don't know if you've ever had that sentiment. He sees what he doesn't have in the world instead of what he has in the Lord. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Why is life so easy for them? I always seem to buy high and sell low. You know, these guys, they find a way to make a fortune even when the market crashes. It's that kind of sentiment. When we focus on the way life seems in the world and how it's not going for us, we begin to question God's goodness. You look at verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. It's this sense that, Lord, I... I've got nothing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to walk with you, and it feels like a waste of time. I think of the scene in Saving Private Ryan where we have got the medic on the beach, beaches of Normandy, and the medic's front flying around trying to do good, and just when he's about to help someone, you know, the bad guys shoot that guy again, and he just kind of throws his hands up. It's like, I, why, what am I even doing? You know, I should just quit. I, we should just give up. And sometimes it feels like that you know, as we engage with the world. So verse 15, he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I had shared this, basically, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, Asaph knows he's in this dark hole. Maybe you've been there. I don't want anyone to know what I'm thinking. I'm so glad that my friends don't have the video of my life today or of my thoughts. So this is a dark place to be. He says, surely God is good to Israel, but he really feels, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. And I would just say, if we ever find ourselves talking like this, feeling like this, we should watch out, and we should probably open up to someone, because these are signs of a drifting heart that's worshiping something else. We love the world, we want what it offers, but we feel like God isn't delivering. The Lord's not enough for us. It's God plus blank, you know, and you can fill in those blanks with what your heart is drawn to. It's God plus blank to make us happy. And when God's not filling in those blanks, we're struggling. So this is the way life seems in the world. Those who are far from God have everything. Those who are near to God seem to have nothing. But something crazy happens in this psalm. We'll talk about it later. I want you to see first where Asaph lands before we talk about how he got there. From the way life seems to the way life really is, it's like Asaph was seeing blurry and in black and white, and then the Lord gives him eyes to see clearly and in color, his whole world gets flipped upside down, or we might say right side up finally. So let's talk about the second thing, the way life actually is in the Lord. So this would be like verses 18 to 28. And it kind of flips the script. Now he sees those who are far from God actually or ultimately have nothing. So verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You remember verse two when he felt like he was about to slip. And now what does he see? Those who are far from God are truly the ones who are on slippery ground. In a moment God can and will sweep them away if they don't turn to him. Do you remember the story of the rich man in Luke 12? God tells him in that in that parable, fool, this very night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And we can be making millions one day, gone the next. We can be getting accolades at work one day, gone the next. We can be partying one day and gone the next. The fleeting satisfactions and joys in this life can vanish in a moment. And when we die, they do vanish in a moment. And we don't have to be living like pagans, sort of the, the wicked people that Asaph talks about um, to really be in danger. To me, the most terrifying quotation in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters is this one where one demon tells another, this younger demon is upset because he can't seem to get the people to do really great sins. So he says, you'll say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. <laughs> but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Who is God? It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murders know better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And the demonic angle there is, let's... Be careful about stirring up the great sins, because the great sins might lead to repentance. Let's let him just kind of go along, as he says, the gradual road, gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. We can live a long and full American dream kind of life and die peacefully, and it could be the devil's safest road to hell. So in the end, all we have in this world is what Asaph is coming to grips with. All we have in this world means nothing if we don't have the Lord. We think the problem is we need more money, success, sex, power, you name it. But what we really need is more of God. And our real problem is sin. It's because of our sin that we can't live in his presence. Without his rescue, we're on this collision course with death and in death, losing, being parted with everything. So those who are far from God will ultimately have nothing. That's what Asaph sees. Do we believe this? If we do believe this, we have to confront why we're restless to buy what the world is selling, and why we struggle to have peace and joy in Christ. I drive these streets. I see uh, incredible homes. I keep expecting to look inside and see people dancing and celebrating. You know, like, we got this home. We've made it. Or, you know, driving up next to a really cool car, and try not to be awkward when you kind of look over and see who's in there, and expect to see people dancing. and Say, I made it. I got this car. And, can, and I haven't seen it yet. It's like the houses, and the cars, and the toys, and the whatever don't seem to do it for us we still seem bored or distracted or unhappy. But when the Lord opens our eyes, we see that those who are far from him, who don't live near him, even if they have everything in this world, they'll ultimately have nothing because they don't have him. And those who are near to him, even if they have nothing in this world, will ultimately have everything. So look at verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. See the contrast again. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Verse 28, but for me, it's good to be near God. This is the bottom line. This is the foothold. This is the rock that holds. It's good to be near God. And this verse 28, this is where all the verses leading up to that are headed. So let me show you. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. It's this sense that we have him. Him. His presence is always open to us. We're with Him. He's with us. If we're in Christ, we have Him. Nothing can separate us from His love. Is His presence a more powerful currency to us than wealth and comfort and the other things that draw us? Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Again, we have Him and He counsels us. He gives us the sure hope of being with Him forever. So if we're in Christ, the infinitely wise God is our counselor and our final destination is sure. We will be with him in glory. It's something to build upon. Verse 25 may be my favorite verse in the psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. The distance between where he was and where that verse is, it's so far. It's amazing. It's a sense that we have him now and forever. Earth has nothing that can compare. Paul might say the surpassing greatness or worth of knowing Christ. If we're in Christ, he's our living water. He's our bread of life. Like my song, the world will try to tell me what I need, but only you can satisfy me. That's what Asaph is feeling. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. To me, that feels like in my weakness, he is strong. We have him. He's our strength. He's what's coming to us, our portion, our inheritance. So our flesh and our heart may fail, but if we are in Christ, we have everything we need. So when I read that section of verses, I struggle to find another passage in the Bible that soars as high as this one. And you could, you know, make your case. Romans 8 is amazing, but this is poetry. This is song. Um, Asaph was so low in the first part, and now he's even higher than he was low. So my encouragement would be take hold of these verses. You know, get them into your mind. Get them into your heart. Get them into your prayers. These verses express the heart, the song of a heart living near to God. But it leaves us with a big question. How does this happen? You know, if we feel far from him, how do we get close to him? In Ephesians two thirteen, Paul writes, But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus is the one who brings us near to God when we're living far from him. We might say the Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us near to God. Uh, it's the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that— brings us near to God, but also turns our earlier question on its head. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? In the truest theological sense, I know there are innocent sufferers in the world all the time, but in the truest theological sense, the the whole bad things happening to good people only ever happened to Jesus, because he is the only one who was truly good through and through He came and lived this life of perfect goodness, and then he suffered more than anyone. He was the good man, the true Israel, and he died on the cross for evil people, for sinners like us. So the father allowed bad things to happen to his good son so that good things could happen to wicked us. So grace is not amazing because good people get what they deserve. That wouldn't be amazing grace. Grace is amazing because the Lord saves sinners from what we really do deserve, which is his judgment. This message is offensive to the world, but this is what the word of God teaches. God lavishes his grace on sinful people because of the faithfulness of his good son. We just simply come to him, own our desperation, and receive his gift. Have you come to him? Do you sense your need, your desperation? Have you received his gracious gift? We see such a transformation in Asaph. The question is how this happened for him. How might it happen to us? And that's our last point. We've talked about the way life seems in the world, the way life actually is in the Lord. And I wanna talk about the way change works. How does this kind of change happen? I just want you to see two things. We need new awareness, not new truth. And we need new perspective, not new circumstances. So, first, we need new awareness, not new truth. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So he's wrestling with all he sees, he's trying to understand it. He says, I'm sort of exhausted trying to figure it out. You may feel that this morning. You hear what I'm saying, but there's this fog it makes some sense. Robbie, I hear what you're saying, but in a few hours I'll be at work, and I feel like I'll just have slipped back into the same way of thinking. So he says, it seems wearisome, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Everything changed when Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. I don't really think this is about the sanctuary itself, like the tabernacle or the ark or our sanctuary over there. As great as these places are, I don't think this is about the place itself. The sanctuary of God is about the presence of God. It's about being with him and being aware of that. So you read the first section of the psalm that we covered first, and it's like, where is God's presence? Surely God is present. He didn't seem to be aware of it. It wasn't making an impact. So he didn't need to learn new things about God. He needed to believe and rest in what he already knew. Even more, he needed to be in the Lord's presence and reconnect with his person. And to having the right thoughts about God is not what it's ultimately all about. Verse 1 is the right thought about God. Surely God is good to Israel. (laughs) It's a right theology, but his heart was not there. So if the truth isn't really affecting our lives, we don't know the truth as we should. In God's presence, what happens is the Lord pushes the gospel truth down into us where it starts to change us. And as we've talked about here for a while, in God's presence, that's where he helps us take that most difficult journey from things being in our head to getting to our heart. So are you seeking sanctuary on a daily basis? This is a form of sanctuary, but probably once a week isn't enough. Is being still in God's presence important to you? Important enough to be non-negotiable. Like a lot of things are gonna happen today, but I know I'm going to get alone with God. I know I'm gonna open his word. I know I'm gonna pray, not in a legalistic way, but in I need the Lord and I need to be with him. I need to, I need to seek sanctuary. And what's amazing is Asaph didn't know what we know about sanctuary. He didn't know that Jesus would be the temple. He didn't know that Jesus is the presence of God. He didn't know that the Holy Spirit would one day fill the church in a new way. He didn't know that Jesus planned to make us a temple, a sanctuary for his spirit. So if you know Christ, you actually are a temple, a sanctuary for his spirit. Don't neglect your privileges. Enjoy his presence, commune with him, come into the sanctuary. Let him remind you how life really is in him. We don't need new truth. We need new awareness from his spirit of the truth that we have in Jesus. And we need new perspective, not new circumstances. You think about this. Did Asaph give us any hint that his circumstances have changed? (laughs) All the stuff he leads with, all the stuff that sets him off in the first part of the song, did any of that change? No. (laughs) Don't miss this. Whatever's going on with the wicked, probably still going on. The circumstances didn't change. And most people in the world allow their circumstances to dictate their life. If things are going well, you're doing well. If things are going badly, you're doing badly. You just think about how you answer when someone says, how was your day? Is it something circumstantial? The deal got went through, or the deal didn't go through, or I had this horrible conversation with so-and-so. Or is, is your... Joy and how you're doing in life coming from a more fixed, solid place, like the Lord himself. So most of us assume different circumstances are what we need. Like, Lord, if you would just change my job, my finances, my house, my health, my wife, my kids, my parents. We think that's the answer. But brothers, it won't work. It might help a little. We need to change. Our hearts, not our circumstances, are the deeper problem. So Asaph's circumstances, as far as we know, didn't change. The Lord changed him in the midst of it. Being in the presence of God is enough to change our perspective radically. When we see the Lord more clearly, we see our circumstances differently. When we live our lives based on our circumstances, just think about it. You will always be vulnerable because any changing circumstance can sink us. But when we live our lives in Christ, we are always secure through every changing circumstance. He is constant. He is with us. And this is the strange truth behind some of the weirder verses in the New Testament. Philippians 4.12, Paul, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Really? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Strange verses if you really take them to heart. So we need new perspective, not new circumstances. And we find that new perspective in the presence of God. When we're with him, he opens our eyes to see things as they really are. Whom have we in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that we desire besides you. That's the new perspective. That's the kind of life that looks strange and compelling to the people around us. It's the kind of life that gives us opportunities to point others to Jesus. At the beginning, I mentioned my song, You Satisfy, and i want to close by sharing a testimony about that song that stopped me in my tracks. And this happened years ago, but it still shakes me up. And I don't think it shows the greatness of the song as much as the power of God. So I just want to share this with you. This is a note from a former PCPC high school staffer that I worked with a long time ago. um, And she wrote this years ago. She said, this morning I had a sobering conversation with a dear friend. She and I met while we were youth interns at PCPC. She was a friend to some of my high school girls, so we started hanging out regularly. Unfortunately, her life has spiraled downhill and has been out of control for several years now. She's been in and out of rehab for substance abuse, eating disorders, and attempted suicide on several occasions. While we were in Dallas, many nights she would call me drunk or ready to take her life, probably the hardest counseling case I've ever had. We were the go-to people for her family. We became a safe place she could stay even after heavy drinking and other things that drinking tends to lead to. So you can sense even in the way she describes what was going on in this young woman's life, you know, the world, the world tries to tell you the way life should be. And as you chase that, can run you into the ground. Since we moved away from Dallas, we completely lost touch with her. She had a new phone number, was living in another state. Time passed, and I wondered what became of her. Several weeks ago, we received a random email from her. She had found our contact information online. Unfortunately, she's no better now than she was years ago. Truly, it's like she's living a nightmare, except it's real. She sent us her written testimony. She's very much aware that she's not out of the woods yet, and she recently relapsed again she proclaims Christ as her Savior, and we remind her of the means of grace as well. She got in touch with us because she said we were the only people she trusted to tell her the truth. She said, I know you know Jesus and love him. I want him so badly, but I just don't even know what to do or where to begin. I'm so ashamed. This morning she called. She strongly considered killing herself again last night. Her plan was to get drunk and drive herself off a cliff. Instead, she called. Praise the Lord. While I was talking to her and begging her to soak in the means of grace and truth and to seek support from people in her area, she said, you guys used to sing a song. And she began to sing, the world will try to tell me what I need, but only you can satisfy me. If I glorify what satisfies my soul, take the glory as you come and make me whole, you satisfy. And she says, do you remember? You don't even understand. That song has kept me alive for years. Do you remember that song? It's breathe life into my soul. And so my friend said, Robbie, there's a girl who desperately needs to know his grace and his mercy, and your song has, in her own words, kept her alive, literally. So I never saw that coming. (laughs) It still humbles me, because I tend to write songs and then think it was a waste of time. (laughs) So this story reminds me that we're in a real life-and-death struggle, and we're playing for keeps. Where we choose to go with these hearts that long to be satisfied really matters. And I don't want to underestimate what the Lord can do when we write and sing about him. And that's just what God did with my silly song. So if God can do that with a silly song, what could he do with something like Psalm 73? I don't want to underestimate the power of his word. Psalm 73, in all its darkness and all of its light, is our story. It's a life and death struggle for us and the people around us. There are people around us who desperately need to hear that there is a God who is gracious, who satisfies the longing of our tired and weary souls. And where we choose to go with these hearts that long to be satisfied really matters. So by God's grace, our lives can magnify the worth, the beauty, the satisfying reality of Jesus Christ. As for us, it is good to be near God. Is it or is it not? May the Lord convince us again that in Him we have everything. May our lives show the world that it's good to be near Him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you're at work. Thank you that you're working in our hearts this morning, and we pray that you would help us to see where we struggle to believe that it's good to be near you. We would think that there would be more life out there apart from you, chasing what the world is offering. Lord, show us that you alone, your love, your grace, your mercy, you yourself are the one who truly satisfies our souls. And Lord, we pray that we would come into your presence daily and be reminded of all that we have in you. Lord, that those who may not know you might feel compelled to come and taste and see that you're good today. And Lord, that you would help us to live lives that are different, that show the world um, somehow your worth. We don't necessarily need new circumstances. We need you to be present and to make us aware that you are with us in the midst of wonderful circumstances and really hard circumstances. Lord, be glorified. Bless our conversations and go with us today. Help us to believe that it is good to be near God. Thank you for drawing near to us in Christ. Draw near to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.